0: John chapter 14. We will be starting in verse 27, reading through the end of the chapter. Jason had went over this text, at least verse 27 last week uh, with us. And as he and I were talking, there was a little bit more that we thought maybe we could talk about. And bring out that really sets the foundation for verses 28 to 31. We're talking about peace. Talking about the peace of God specifically. This peace we read of in Philippians. Of the peace that surpasses all understanding. That guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a peace that Jesus gives as he says not as the world gives. And as he speaks of this peace, he encourages them again not to let their heart be troubled or be fearful. This kind of peace that he is referring to is is a supernatural peace in the midst of turbulent times. A supernatural peace in the midst of a trial. We think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict, the absence of war. Everything is hunky-dory, as we would say. And that's not the kind of peace that he's talking about. He's talking about having a peace and resolve in your heart in the midst of something terrible, something awful, something that is a great trial. And we see this peace throughout the pages of Scripture. We see it in others in the time of their deaths, just as uh, a few examples here. I mean, think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen, who is really given a great history of the people of God, of of Israel, in the Old Testament, of how often they were stiff-necked, how often they rebelled against the Lord. And what that ended up doing, of course, was to anger the religious leaders that he was speaking to. And in the time that they began to put him to death, that they are stoning him. This is what we read in verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of god and he said behold i see the heavens opened up and the son of man standing at the right hand of god but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse when they had driven him out of the city they began stoning him and and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul and they went on stoning stephen as he called on the lord and said lord jesus receive my spirit Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. In the midst of him dying, being stoned to death, he was able to have that peace of heart. To stand boldly before the very ones that condemned his Lord. To stand boldly before them and to declare the vision that he is seeing at that moment of the Lord Jesus. And then to have that peace of heart in the midst of this stoning to pray unto the Lord to say, don't hold this against them. How how do you have that kind of peace in the midst of death or uh, that kind of peace, knowing that your death is is approaching Peter in uh, second Peter? Second Peter, chapter one, as he is writing to the church. To the people of God. He says this in verses 13 and 14 of the first chapter. He says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. He knows that his death is coming and it's going to be imminent as the Lord has revealed to him. And what is it that he's doing? He's writing to the people of God to encourage them in their faith. And he says at the end of his letter, verse 18 of chapter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. How can he have that kind of peace? Knowing that his death is imminent. And the kind of death that we read of in church history of Peter. Peter's in Rome. And Peter is crucified upside down. Because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as the Lord Jesus did. The Apostle Paul, writing in Second Timothy, <clears throat> chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Here's the Apostle Paul, who is speaking of his death as well. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We know that Paul was in Rome as well, and ultimately Paul was beheaded. This is a supernatural kind of a peace. As he is in prison awaiting his death, he has the peace of God, which which surpasses all comprehension that he's writing to other believers and he's encouraging them. He has that resolve. He has that great confidence and trust in the Lord. How can he have that? Was it only contained to them? Well, that was the apostles. Well, listen to this. This is Ignatius of Antioch who was a 2nd century pastor we uh, are privileged to have his writings along with others Ignatius was succeeded he succeeded the apostles claimed that he knew the apostle John as Polycarp did as Papias did he's been arrested he is on his way to be tried and to be put to death And as he is writing to the church of Rome, here's what Ignatius of Antioch said. My desires are crucified. The warmth of my body is gone. A stream flows whispering inside me. Deep within me it says, come to the Father. Near to the sword, I am near to God. In the company of wild beasts, I am in the company with God. Only let all that happens Be in the name of Jesus Christ, so that we may suffer with him. I can endure all things if he enables me. I am God's wheat. May I be ground by the teeth of the wild beast until I become the fine white bread that belongs to Christ. He's not an apostle. But a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Polycarp. As he is also facing his death. He says, Lord God Almighty, father of your beloved and blessed child, Jesus Christ, I bless you that you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be able to share in the number of the martyrs to drink from the cup of your Christ, that I may rise and live forever body and soul in the incorruption of the Holy Spirit. May I be admitted with those martyrs to your presence this day as a welcomed and acceptable sacrifice. You have made my life a preparation for this. You let me see that this was to happen. And now you have brought it to pass for you are the true and faithful God. And there are many, many instances in which the last words of those that are getting ready to die. Are those words of praising and honoring the Lord. In the face of their death. How can they have that? How can they have that kind of peace? And that, that to have that composure. And that assurance in the face of their deaths. I mean as we've talked about before. With even the Marian martyrs. And you have John Rogers. Who was the first Marian martyr. And he's being led to the place of his execution. Tried in in, in London. They would Then lead them to the place in which they ministered. And they would burn them in front of their church. As he's going. The the French ambassador is there. And he's recording all the things that are happening. The the streets are lined with with people. As John Rogers is being led to his death. And the French ambassador. He's riding back to his country. And he says. it says though Rogers looked like he was going to a wedding. How can he have that kind of countenance? And he gets to the place of his execution. And he looks over the place in which they are going to tie him up and burn him. And he looks over his wife and his children. And he looks over his congregation. And he says, that which I have preached to you, I will now seal with my own blood. How can he do that? How can they do that knowing the death that they are getting ready to endure? It's a peace that is incomprehensible. A peace that, that is trusting in the Lord. How can that be? And with many of those men that died under Mary, the Queen of England. When they got to the place of their execution, they, they would reach down and they would pick up a piece of the wood. That would be used to set them on fire. They would kiss it. They would put it back. And they would kneel down and begin to pray. As Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer had done. Hugh Latimer being the older gentleman, Nicholas Ridley being the younger man. Tied together, they were going to die together. Hugh Latimer says to Nicholas Ridley, Fear not, Master Ridley. And play the man. For today we shall light such a candle. In England as I pray will never be put out. And they lift their hands. And they're set on fire. How can they do that? How can they bless the Lord. And be at such peace. In the time of their deaths. And we read of that here. Because the peace that is given to the people of God is not a peace of this world. It is a supernatural peace. A peace that is beyond our comprehension. It is this kind of, this peace that is applied to us by the Spirit of God that sustains us in life's great trials. That gives us confidence in times of loss. That cultivates in us unwavering trust in Christ. And that helps us endure even the attack of the enemy. This is a passage we need to give our attention to. If you would please stand with me as we give honor to God's word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Beginning in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You have heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the father for the father is greater than I. Now, I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this for the ruler of the world is coming. And he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the great encouragement that it provides to us. Thank you for the instruction that you give of where we ought to be turning in our times of need. Thank you for the great examples that we have, not only within the scripture, but in the history of the church, the history of your people in which you provided exactly what was needed. in the times in which your people would leave this world, the times in which they were persecuted so greatly. You give us such peace. This peace is ours. This peace is ours who are in Christ, for all who are in Christ. Father, let our hearts be encouraged today Let our trust in you grow even more. To you be the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus has announced his departure, but he has also announced... That another is coming in order to take his presence. To be his presence on earth. Jesus had told his disciples that he would ask of the father. And the father would give another helper. And this word another is, is meaning this one of the same kind. One who is equal to Christ is coming. And we had talked about how... Uh, how Jesus uses that and how Jesus is speaking of the spirit of God, that the spirit of God is indeed equal to the Lord Jesus. He's not inferior to the Lord Jesus. He is equal. We understand from John's writings all through uh, what we've been through so far that Jesus is God, that he is God in the flesh. He is equal to the father. And then he speaks of the spirit of God being another helper, another advocate, another comforter who is going to, Dwell with the disciples as Jesus himself did. So in order to dwell with the disciples as Jesus did. To teach the disciples as Jesus did. He has to be equal with Jesus. Equal in his being. Equal in every aspect. And Jesus speaks of the spirit of truth again. The helper who is coming. Who who will teach them all things and bring back to their remembrance all that he said. And we know that that's true because we have the scripture. How the Holy Spirit moved upon them and they wrote. As he speaks of the Spirit coming, he says those words in verse 27 Peace I leave with you. That peace is is a consequence of the Spirit of God coming, coming in the fullness upon all believers. That is why Jesus has said before it's expedient that I go, it's to your advantage that I go. Because the helper is coming. The advocate is coming. Whom the father will send in my name. And as he comes. And as he dwells with the believers. As he empowers them for the work of ministry. As he applies to them the benefits of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The result of that is peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. This is a peace. Peace. That sustains us in life's great trials because Jesus is announcing these things when the disciples are getting ready to have a great trial before them in just a few hours. They are going to see their master arrested, beaten, tried in a mockery of a trial. They're going to see him crucified. This is going to be a great testing of their faith that they are getting ready to endure. But Jesus announces to them beforehand, the spirit is coming. He actually says earlier. That of the coming of the spirit whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And in that in that exchange that Jesus was saying that the spirit is already dwelling with them. They know the character of the spirit because they know Christ. Just as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So, too, if you've seen Christ, you've seen the spirit of God. Same character, the same attributes. This one. That is dwelling with them, that will sustain them in this great hour and grant them peace. He's about to send his disciples right into the storm. Just as he had done previously. Actually if you begin to think about that. In Mark chapter 4 we read of. How Jesus sends his disciples. uh, Into the storm. As Jesus is out praying. He looks over the disciples. He can see them toiling. And then he comes walking on the sea. Excuse me that was Mark chapter 6. He sent them into the storm. And he came walking on the water. To show How powerful he was even over the storm. In Mark chapter 4 is when he is in the boat with them. And he sends them into the storm. And they wake him up and he rebukes the winds and the seas. Showing his power over it all. He's going to send them into this storm. And he's going to show his power and his authority and his sovereignty over this, this entire scheme that's getting ready to happen. And that's important to know because oftentimes Christ sends us into the storm as well. Christ sends us into situations that are the testing, the times of testing for our faith. And he sends them. He allows them. He brings them about as Job says, the Lord performs that which is appointed for me. And it's for the testing of your faith, the growing of your faith, that you can be more dependent upon him. And that that peace of God as you cling to him will be true for you. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Andreas Kostenberg says this. Moreover, in contrast to worldly conceptions of peace as the absence of war, Jesus' peace is not exemption from turmoil, danger, and duress. Jesus, through the spirit he would send, offers his followers poise and resolve in the midst of discomforting circumstances. As Jesus was about to demonstrate, his peace is not the absence of conditions that intimidate But rather is the composure to be faithful in the face of adversity. That's the kind of peace that we have in Christ. Not the absence of trials. Not the absence of danger. Not the absence of intimidation. But the resolve and the composure to maintain our faithfulness in the Lord. And our trust in the Lord. And our confidence in the Lord. In the midst of that particular trial or temptation that's the kind of peace that he brings that's that supernatural peace in times in which you should be in our understanding of things or our terms losing your mind instead you have confidence instead you have resolve when you shouldn't why? because the spirit of God is working in your heart to bring back to your remembrance that which is the Lord had said that is ground the truths that are grounded in his word that sustains you and gives you peace gives you comfort of heart That's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes His Word and He applies it to the heart and He comforts the people of God. That's why these same men that are eventually going to run off and hide are going to be the very ones that stand before the same council that crucified our Lord and say, we obey God rather than men. This is the peace that sustains us. What things have happened in your own life. In which you thought you were at the end of your rope. You thought that "I'm, I'm getting ready to come apart. I'm getting ready to lose it. And instead what happened. The Lord provided exactly what you needed. To endure it in a way that honored him. I can remember. As many of us can, in the times in which you know that someone that is close to you, someone that you love, is getting ready to pass on, and you, you, you think of the fear that comes upon you and, and the heartache that comes upon you knowing what is getting ready to happen. But then you have peace of heart to know that whatever happens that God knows best, whatever happens is in agreement with what the Lord has planned. And that's hard. I remember when I first heard that my dad was diagnosed with cancer and you think cancer and you hear that word and you just fall to pieces. I remember being at home alone, I remember burying my face in the in the couch and crying out to the Lord. But then after so long of being there and praying all of a sudden my tears stopped and I raised up from the raised up from the floor and I was thinking what has happened because my tears are gone and there was a comfort that came over me everything's going to be fine everything's okay and I remember that helping me so greatly throughout that that whole ordeal because even my brother who's Gone on since. He he even got a little upset at me. We were talking and he's like, we were at the hospital and Dad was uh, having some procedure done and he said, "I don't know about all this, bro. What do you think?" I said, "I said whatever happens, it's going to be okay." What do you mean by that? I said, "I said brother, it's going to be okay." I said if Dad is able to be healed from this and stay with us, it's going to be great. If he doesn't, it's going to be great for him too. And it's going to be okay. And this is someone that you love. You don't want to see him leave. You don't want to see him depart. But at the same time, you have a comfort that is there to say, everything's fine. Because this is what I have planned. And we'll actually get to that even more as we work our way through here. Uh, Another aspect of that. The Lord, in our great trials, sustaining us, even in the face of adversity, promoting within us such such an encouragement and strength. He gives us that that great awareness of his loving presence. That is with us. That brings about that peace in the midst of the storms. This is a supernatural peace. This is a piece, as he goes on to say, that gives us confidence in times of loss. In verse 28, Jesus says to them, and remember, they, they are troubled at heart. They are fearful because he's getting ready to leave. Been with him three and a half years, constantly with him. And now to hear he's getting ready to leave. But he says to them, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, that's important. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Now, he's saying you all should be rejoicing that I'm departing, not grieving, because I'm going back to the Father. He's going back to his exalted state. The glory that he shared with the Father before his incarnation. He's going back, as D.A. Carson said, to the sphere of his existence. And the disciples should be rejoicing in that. Because it's going to be through that resurrection and exaltation that he's going to sit back at the right hand of the Father. Ruling and reigning. Now that brings to mind an interesting Topic as well, because Jesus will go on to say, in light of that, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. What does he mean? We maintain that Jesus is equal to the Father in his being, that the Holy Spirit is equal to. To the Father and the Son. In their being. They're co-equal. They're co-existent from all eternity. How can Jesus say that the Father is greater than Him? And this is a verse that is used by Jehovah's Witnesses. And those that reject the triune nature of God. What is Jesus referring to here? I think what helps us to shed light on that. Is in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul really gives us the the, the greatest example of how to cultivate humility in our lives. Because he wants the church of Philippi to have this attitude in them, which was in Christ Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul says to them, verse 5, those very words, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, he's affirming... Jesus' equality with the Father here. He existed in the form of God. The one who existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the Apostle Paul is speaking of, of course, his humiliation in the incarnation. That when Jesus was was willing, he was willingly coming, of course. He was not commanded to come. He willingly come. But what he did in his coming was to lay aside his divine prerogatives. He didn't lay aside his deity because he cannot stop being God. But he did lay aside his prerogatives. His advantage above all others is God. And he humbles himself. He comes as a servant And who is subject to the will of another. He didn't come as a free man subject to no one. He came as a servant. Who subjected himself to the will of the Father. He humbled himself. He became obedient. This very thing the Father did not do. The Holy Spirit did not do. Only the second person of the Trinity. Became incarnate. Humbled himself. Laid aside his divine prerogatives. Laid aside his advantages of what he, what he had as God. We read in the scripture, God is in the heavens. He can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. When Christ became incarnate, he only did that which the Father commanded him to do. He did nothing of his own initiative. But only did that which the Father commanded him to do. So in that, in that sense, he condescended. He takes the form of man. He adds humanity to his being and he becomes a servant. He becomes obedient. So in his position. The father is greater than he. Because the father is still on his cosmic throne ruling and reigning. Subject to no one except his own nature. The son. Becomes incarnate. And follows the will of the father. That's why. Why. I mean, if you just begin to think in the time of the temptation that Jesus endured in the wilderness, when Satan's like, you're the son of God. You've been fasting 40 days. You need to eat. You look bad. Why don't you turn these rocks over here into some bread? Nourish yourself. Was it sinful that Jesus would turn rocks into bread and eat? No. But that's not what the father commanded him to do so he did nothing on his own initiative but only that which the father commanded him to do and in that sense he laid aside his divine prerogatives so this is the idea of what he is saying you should rejoice that i'm going back to the father to my exalted state for he's greater than i while i'm here while i'm while i'm in this incarnation in position I'm lesser than him because I'm I'm coming as a servant. But when I depart, going back to share in the glory that we've had before the world was. So in that sense, the disciples could only see their loss, not the advantage of the one who was leaving. They could only see the loss that was really grounded in their self-centeredness, really, because it's selfishness. Instead of seeing the the benefit of Christ going back to the Father to be exalted. Exalted. But Jesus says that this kind of peace that He is providing is the kind of peace that that, that during your times of loss that gives you great confidence even in the Lord. Because that comes that becomes very real to us. Going back to what we were talking about before, that becomes very real to us when our loved ones depart in Christ. We only think of the loss. We don't think of the advantage of the one who's leaving. As the Apostle Paul says, it's their gain. So why would we not rejoice in that sense for those that that die in Christ? That this is your gain. I should be rejoicing that the Lord brought you home because you're not enduring the various things that you did before. You're not having to to endure the worldly system and the opposition that comes there. Or to endure your own self and battling with your own temptations. That's over. You don't have to do that no more. For the Lord has called you home. That's why you have to remind yourself of these things during the times in which you experience that kind of loss. And it may not even be a death in the family. The death among someone who is close to you. Maybe it's a loss of something else. Maybe it's a loss of a job that will bring more glory to the Lord. Maybe it's a loss of people that you have to put out your life for the glory of God. Maybe it's a loss of some of your possessions. Whatever it may be. We only think of the loss. We don't think of how it's going to magnify the Lord. We don't think of whether or not it's in accordance with the will of God. That's going to bring him more honor. We don't think of that. We only think of the loss. But if we can turn our attention. Back to the majesty of God. Then the peace. That surpasses all understanding. Will help to guard our hearts and minds. In the event of. Whatever loss that we experience. And give us great confidence. That even though this is being lost. Or I'm losing this. Or whatever it may be. Lord my confidence in you is still there. Because I know you're the sovereign one. I know that all things are plan A, and there's never plan B. That's the kind of peace that he, that, he, that he brings about. And the disciples would experience this. They will experience this. They don't see it now, they only see him leaving. But it's it's something that they should have rejoiced in that he's going back to the Father. You know, the amazing thing, just as a footnote, when you think about what it is that the Lord Jesus did, the second person of the Trinity, the one who dwelled in unapproachable light, who is our only sovereign, as the scriptures describe him, who becomes incarnate, he adds humanity to his being. Do you recognize that he didn't put off that body whenever he went back to the father? He still has his glorified body. And he will forever have his glorified body. When he added humanity to his being, he will forever be in that glorified state as far as his glorified body. That's amazing. He didn't become lesser. He didn't diminish his, his deity when he added humanity. Nothing like that. But he still has his glorified body that he was resurrected with. And he will forever have it. That's pretty amazing. But he's going back to the Father. Should have been a time of rejoicing. Back to the sphere where he belongs, as D.A. Carson said. At this point, the Father is in a greater position than him. But when he's resurrected and he's exalted by the Father, once again to sit at his right hand, having no limitations. They didn't see that. But when these things begin to happen, this is what's going to promote in them that greater, that greater trust in him, that unwavering trust. He says, now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. In the times in which the, the, all the things that he's getting ready to say to them that are coming in the chapters, the things that he has said previously, when these things happen, you'll know. You'll know that everything that I said was true. You'll know that I'm the sovereign one who is orchestrating this all because it's happening just as I planned it. And that's going to give them a greater confidence in him, a greater trust. Everything he said happened. There was nothing that failed. They found great comfort in in, in the word of Christ that, that promoted this great trust in them. Not only would their hearts rejoice when it happened, speaking of his resurrection and his exaltation to the father, but it would be the catalyst that the Holy Spirit would use to embolden them. Because it's the resurrection that they begin to proclaim. It's the resurrection that they begin to preach on the day of Pentecost. The resurrection that they proclaimed everywhere they went that brought them persecution. And they still stood firm and they still stood bold and they still had great confidence in the Lord. They never changed their message. They never changed their testimony. They kept exactly what it was. That they knew was true. Because everything Jesus said. Happened. It verified him. It vindicated him to be who he claimed to be. They had that truth. They knew that truth. And they rested in that truth. No matter what they endured. They clung to his word. And they delighted and rested in it. When confronted with. The false ideas that all of them endured in the various places that they went. All the hardships on account of the truth. They persevered because they knew what was true. They rested in that truth. They never changed their testimony. Here's something interesting. Especially speaking of the resurrection. They proclaimed everywhere. Before the courts everywhere. That Christ was raised from the dead. They were willing to endure. Great punishment. On account of that testimony. We see them in the book of Acts. They're beaten. And they go away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Who does that? I'm so glad I got this fat lip right here. All this blood coming up my nose. Who can do that? The Holy Spirit brings about such change in us and circumstances that unless we're there, we just look at it and go, how can that be? But they were willing to endure these particular tortures, all of that, and they they never recanted. Why? Because people do not die for what they know to be a lie. People die for a lie all the time. You can believe whatever you want to and trust in that and, and die. But if you know what you're saying is not true, you're not going to endure the horrendous tortures and all the persecution that comes with that truth or with that statement or with that idea. People do not die for what they know to be a lie. And the disciples endured tremendous persecution and pain. Many were crucified, many had. A spear ran through them, Sword beheaded. I think Bartholomew was flayed alive. They endured it because they were confirmed in the truth of God. That's what they trusted in. That's what they rested in. And that's where the peace of God came in. The more that they knew and the more that they learned and the more that they grew, the more that that peace was present in their life. And this is exactly how the people of God have done from from the beginning. Willing to endure such times. And the, and the peace of God has, has sustained them. The word of God has sustained them. And this is, this is no different for you. And this is why it is so important for you. To, to know the scripture. To know what Christ has done for you. To know the promises of God. To know what Christ has made us. That He has made you a kingdom of priests to His God, to His Father. We are a royal priesthood. We're a peculiar people. We're a holy nation. We're the apple of God's eye. We're the holy temple. We're We're the household of God. We're the body of Christ. All of these things that the Scripture describes of the people of God to describe how holy that you are in the sight of God, how precious that you are in the sight of God. And the more that you come to know that and the more that you come to understand that and the things that God has promised to you, not only in this life, but in the life to come, the more that in the time of that trial, in the time of that opposition, the peace of God will be there and sustain you. Because there's a greater hope after this. If our hope is only in this life, then we are people most miserable, as Paul says. When you know the truth of God... This is what moves us and sustains us and emboldens us, causes a greater trust in him. And then we see this. These things are the implications of what Jesus is saying. I've told you these things before it happens so that you may believe when it happens. Your faith grows as a result of your knowledge of his word. And it also sustains you and helps you to endure the attacks of the enemy. He says in verse 30 and 31, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and has nothing in me. Now, the ruler of the world is, is speaking of Satan. We remember earlier in chapter 13 that Satan entered Judas. Jesus looks over to him and says, what you do, do quickly. Go on out. As Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he knows the footsteps of Judas is plotting As he's speaking, the footsteps of Judas are out gathering the people, gathering the Sanhedrin, gathering the soldiers in order to come and arrest him. So he says, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming. But he adds this statement, he has nothing in me. And this is important. It's a common Hebrew expression that's used in a legal context means he has no legal claim on me or no hold on me. J.C. Ryle says, there is nothing he can lay hold on. There is no weak and defective point in me. I have kept my father's commandments and finished the work he gave me to do. Satan, therefore, cannot overthrow me. He can lay nothing to my charge. He cannot condemn me. I shall come forth from the trial more than the conqueror. For Christ is indeed the spotless lamb of God, without blemish, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. What charge can Satan hold against him or to come up with or to conjure up? And if you just look at the trial of Jesus, you see that he failed. No matter what was said during the trial, no matter what witnesses came forth in order to lay a charge against him, they still could not condemn him. Why? Because they had nothing to lay hold of. And even in the midst of that particular mockery of a trial, you see the composure of the Lord Jesus. It could have been that Satan thought maybe he can lay a charge against him. Or maybe, maybe in Satan's great arrogance and his pride, maybe he thought that in the midst of a trial with all these people there that are falsely accusing him and all of this hype that's going on, that Jesus would have become angry enough to have done something. That didn't happen either. Actually, instead, the the complete opposite happened. As the witnesses are there to try to condemn him, they can't do that right. And so finally, the high priest, he says, look, if you're the Christ, just tell us. And it's as though it is. And it's not really funny, but I can't help but just be amused by it. It's like, okay, Jesus is like, you guys can't even do this right. Let me help you. Yes, I am. And you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power. And then they tear their clothes. And then they're, oh, we blaspheme. What say you? Death. It's like they can't even do that right. Jesus has to help him to condemn himself. I mean, that just shows how, well, it just shows the lack of man and being able to accomplish anything. There's nothing that Satan can lay hold of here. But he does this willingly. He knows it's coming, but he, this is a testimony of him. He says, but so the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. That's the testimony of Jesus. Satan has nothing he can hold against me. He can lay nothing to my charge. But so the world will know that I love the Father. I'm going to do exactly as he's commanded me. And I'm going to head right into the storm. That's the implication of what he's saying. And he's going to do it Willingly. No one takes my life from me. He says. I lay down my own life. Or I lay down my life on my own accord. This is showing the world. The great love that the son has for the father. First and foremost. I mean if you begin to think about the work of Christ. What was being demonstrated in the work of Christ. First and foremost. It was to honor his father. And secondly, to redeem those that the Father had given Him. That peace that Jesus was getting ready to show them, even under the attack of the enemy, is a peace that helps us to endure the great attacks. That's the kind of peace that we're talking about. There's nothing worldly about this peace. It's a supernatural peace that is granted to all the people of God. Not just to some of the people of God. A peace that is granted to all the people of God. So this peace is not a peace that is achieved by your own strength. By your own merit. By your own abilities. This is a peace that only God can give. And God only gives it to those that are truly in Christ. It's a peace that is able to grow and become even more mature as we progress along in our walk with Christ as, as the knowledge of God comes and our trust of God comes this is the kind of peace you know even taken from the example of the disciples they considered more of the loss rather than the gain of Christ and that's our problem too we think of the loss and not what magnifies God but understand this that even in the midst of whatever it is that you lose if you will turn your attention to the majesty of your Lord. That's why the scriptures tell us that. Focus your eyes on him. The author and the finisher of faith. Run with endurance. Run the race set before you looking unto him. Why? Because when you begin to look at everything else, that's when the entanglements come. That's when, that's when the, the, the overwhelming emotions come. When you take your eyes off of Him. Even in the midst of great pain, you you can rejoice in what the Lord is doing. You can rejoice and have confidence in Him. The great enemies of God can only trouble you if you allow them to. Because, I mean, look at what Satan was trying to do to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus was the sovereign one over Him. He could do nothing. And because you are in Christ, that's the thing. This isn't on your own merit. It's not about you binding Satan and then letting him go so another church can do it next week. It's about the Lord Jesus having full authority over him. And you being in Christ. And everything that he is allowed to do or not allowed to do, Christ is sovereign over. But he does give us this warning in 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter five. Beginning verse six. The scripture tells us, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, did you catch the language on that? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And as Dr. Joe Beakey has said before, Satan is like a dog on a leash. He can only go so far. But if you get too close, that's when he can bite you. If you allow yourself to get too close to temptations or those things that cause you to stumble, he can bite you. If you take your focus off the Lord Jesus and focus him too much on your your circumstances and all of that, then you end up falling into despair and he can bite you. And understand this, what, what occurs in this world indeed produces some very strong, strong emotions in us. But those need to be kept in check. And they need to be kept in check by remembering God's word and God's truth. So that, so that in those times too that you can have peace of heart. Not that you're indifferent to what happens in the nation. Or that you're indifferent to what happens in the world. We're not to be indifferent. We're not to be at ease. We're not to be lax. Any of that. But at the same time the way that you respond. And the emotions that you allow to fester up within you need to be kept in check. By the word of God. By the truth of God. So that what you respond to. What you say. Is going to be honoring to the Lord. And not dishonoring. And you can respond in the right way. Because the spirit of God. Applying the peace to your heart. Giving you that resolve. Giving you that composure. To keep yourself in check. And to respond in a way that honors Christ. One writer said this, and that, and that keeps us from falling into despair. You can look at the things that are going on, and you can really get worked up really quick. But it keeps us from falling into despair. One writer says this, and then we'll pray. I love this. He says, we have the spirit within us, the Savior above us, and the word before us. What tremendous resources for peace. within us, the Savior above us, and the Word before us. We have tremendous resources that this peace that surpasses all understanding will be a reality in our life. Let's seek after it, and we seek after it through the pages of Scripture, by the Spirit of God applying it to us, and to continually seek after it. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, how we give you praise and honor for all that you are. How you sustain us in times of great trials, in times of great difficulties that go on in in our city, and our nation. You sustain us with your peace to know that you are bringing history, which is his story, to its intended end. Everything is going according to your plan. And again, Let us not be indifferent to what's going on, but let us be trusting in you with what is going on. Let us be reminded of your sovereignty, of your power, that our trust in you would grow. Father, we all endure various things in our individual lives. And so I pray for each one of us here that you would help to allow that peace to be present. That it would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. Do a mighty work within us. And make this peace a reality. Thank you so much. That this isn't as the world gives. But only a peace that is from you. We praise you. We honor you. For this great comfort. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. Holy Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.